Good morning. It's me again. Apologize for that. Um, just on that Johnny and Friends video, if you want more information for how you can practically respond as God's people, check out our Evangelical Alliance Northern Ireland website. We've got a bit of a hub on the front page there, reimaginingfaith.com. Um, very aware every time I'm up on a stage behind a microphone, behind a pulpit, there is a responsibility here is to speak God's words, but there's a responsibility with you guys to hear and respond to God's words, and so we need his grace together this morning. This is a two-week series exploring gospel, church, and mission with Evangelical Alliance and with me in the role as church and mission coordinator, beginning with the identity of the church within the whole story of God, because a solid understanding of who we are is what determines what we do and how we do it. And last week, um, grinding ourselves in Exodus 19 and the first Peter 2 verse, um, we were thinking of ourselves as the kingdom of priests. This week, we're stretching on into thinking of ourselves as a holy nation, church and mission as counterculture. Uh, we got that first screen. Oh, guys, that's the ones from last week. We don't have, we don't have um, PowerPoint this morning, sorry. Uh, right, but we will rock on. Um, join me in this old childhood rhyme. Um, here is the church, here is the steeple, open the doors, here are the people. Here is the pastor climbing the stairs, there he is quietly saying his prayers. You didn't know that last bit, did you? What kind of church leadership did you grow up with? Um, Tabitha can't quite mesh her fingers together, and so when she opens the doors, there's no people in the church, but that is Peter Linus's seminar. Um, church, steeple, doors, people, pastor, quiet, prayers. These are some of the aspects of how we think of ourselves and holiness within the church. This steeple was originally designed on a church building in the 12th century as a vertical line between heaven and earth, which put God's presence in the building. The doors became the boundary line between the holy presence of God within and the contaminated world outside. The church interior became the place of silence, experiential, reverent holiness, not to be disturbed. I grew up in a church whose theology did not sign up to that model of church, but there was within themselves and the culture within the church set up an expectation for that to be the case of holiness and the outworking of holiness. Um, behavior, dress code, noise level, and activity in the inside was a measure of holiness. And holiness the rest of the week out there was determined by what we did not do, go, drink. And it didn't quite add up to me, so it was okay to go to the cinema. Not to, you didn't go to the cinema, but you could watch DVDs. You didn't wear a skirt that was too short, but you could wear one, even though it was made in a Bangladeshi sweatshop, and it cost an arm and a leg. What does it mean for us to be a holy nation as church? And how does this determine our missional engagement? Israel was set apart as a covenant community under a theocracy. God was the king. You will be our God. We will be your people. They were given a way of living as God's special people, the law, 
and that law was radically countercultural in its contexts. They were to do life in a very different way to the surrounding nations, not in a sparkly, otherworldly way. This form of worship was grounded in the nitty-gritty, everyday parts of life. Why? So that the surrounding nations would see a better, more beautiful way of life and be attracted to Israel's God and King. She was to be a light to the nations that pointed to God. Did she succeed? Sadly not. She compromised, failed to trust her God, coalitioned with people on the outside, and grew cold. And then she grew legalistic under Pharisaic law. Why? Because the human heart, the human community, is filled with that default to sin. We're going to read Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. The words will not be on the screen. Um, if you can find it wherever you are, um, we'll stand and read, because this is the public reading of God's public truth as a public gathering. Let's stand. You are the salt of the earth. But if your salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Have a seat. What does it mean for us in Windsor Church to be a holy nation? Well, firstly, let's think about the word holy. When I lived with a Bangladeshi Muslim family for six months, all sorts of conversations came up about that inner extern and external holiness relationship. And I read the Old Testament again with fascination and through a different lens. Auntie, the girls in the house would say, why do you not do all the, the ritual washing before you lift your scripture? Auntie, how can you pray after you've just changed Micah's nappy? And the Old Testament is full of this relationship between the external and the internal ways of being holy. Rituals, rules, reminders to God's people that they were to be separate. Lists of daily items and activities which contaminated their purity and ritual measures to regain their purity. The temple contained the Holy of Holies, where God's presence rested. It was off limits, apart from the high priest. We have that picture of Sinai, where the people and the animals weren't even allowed to physically touch that mountain because of that ultimate holiness and purity of Yahweh. And there's a picture of Isaiah surrounded by the angels declaring Yahweh's holiness and they reach out with a burning coal, touch his lips and his unclean mouth, preparing him for a purpose. And then Jesus, who tabernacled, dwelled among us human beings, the full embodiment of the holiness of God, not in a building this time, in a person. And he came, he touched the impure, but wasn't contaminated. His purity cleansed the impure, the unclean. His touch on them removed their impurity. Think of the lepers and the prostitute. He made them clean. And now we, his church, because of our identity in him, live in the shadow of his holiness. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, he is our righteousness. He is our holiness, our redemption. Jesus himself identified as the light of the world. And now in Matthew 5, he designates that identity and that task to us, his people. We are the light of the world because we are an extension of him, because we are now a temple of his person and his spirit. He inhabits us, his church, his body, by the indwelling power and person of his spirit. And he sends us out into the world as a holy nation with the notion that just like Jesus, as we step out and touch these corners of the earth, we can, through his spirit, bring a fullness and a wholeness and a cleanness and a purpose and a new life. Secondly, let's think of nation, a holy nation. And we want to veer away from that um, idea of being a Christian country. Our modern usage of the English form of you, singular and plural, is blended together. And so it's confusing when you go into first year in school and you start to learn French and you learn tu and vous. And for this passage, perhaps vous is a more suitable way of thinking. In fact, for Northern Ireland, a better way of thinking is to use the term usins or y'all. Usins are the salt to the earth. Usins are the light to the world. Usins are like a city on a hill, a little mini society. The word used here is polis, which isn't used very often to refer to church. A little mini society, a way of doing life together that everyone should be able to see. And so this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, isn't heretical, but it's not what Jesus is saying in this passage in Matthew 5. You, plural, and actually this is the dominant use of you in the New Testament church letters. When Paul steps out of you, plural, he uses the term each one of you, perceiving me and you as individuals building blocks of the whole community, the whole church, the whole you. And so in the fuller gospel story, we perceive ourselves as human beings, individual image bearers, saved from guilt, death, and condemnation, now re-imaged, saved for the renewal and restoration of God's world out there, and we do this by being saved to a community. In fact, everything today is a community. We are saved to form a new society, a new form of humanity. J.B. Phillips comments that in Christ, being in Christ is the most common term used for salvation in Paul's writings. It dominated the first Christians' understanding of who they were so fully convinced that their little human lives had in Christ been linked up with the very life of God. 
these early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become in Christ literally sons of God. They were pioneers of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom. And a few weeks ago, we used the image of being fully, wholly bound, knit together with Christ in an individual way. But in here, we are knit together with Christ in him as a new form of a society, a community, a group of people who be humans differently. Globally, thank you, Trevor, for reminding us of our union to the church in Asia. Historically, nationally, locally, and in here, we are new. God is doing something new in his world through his spirit. And that is a we. The holy nation is a countercultural humanity. The root word for holiness when applied to Israel is kadosh, literally cut off. The picture is like a branch separated from a tree, but for a purpose, so that it can be of use for something. Tim Keller says, Holiness for God's people is a posture of heart that says, you have separated me, cut me off, use me for your purpose. I belong to you. Holy nation, distinct, different, other, so that we can be of use. And Jesus takes these contrast items, salt and light, and Stephen, I had your picture because of their very essence, being salt, being light, fulfill a purpose. Fulfill a purpose that was desired to create that contrast, light to dark, salt to bacteria, or salt to bland flavor. They had a function. And the function was to counter or to contrast the status quo in a specific way. Does that ring a bell from last week? Purpose? function. The Western church in missional conversations today has become so obsessed with making church relevant for society and culture. Yes, and I am all for thinking through how to communicate the gospel in a way that's understood fully, but our efforts to make church relevant only deny the point of the gospel, that it is a counter-cultural message for us to be a countercultural people. Our response to the gospel is essentially an act of entering into a countercultural way of life under a countercultural king. Jesus entered the public arena and said, The time has come that you've been waiting for. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news that the kingdom is here. The word used for repent, metanoia, is not a commonly used word in the New Testament, but widely found in the contemporary um, documents of a political nature. Repent meant change how you're thinking, form a new allegiance with something else. Replace what you're thinking and doing with a better way. And so to repent and believe the gospel essentially is to say, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. 
And when we, say, we talk about repenting and believing, we need to unpack the relationship between belief and faith. When Jesus left this world, he didn't leave his disciples with a long list of doctrinal statements that they could tick off as a form of mental assent. He left a covenant community, a set of teaching that he lived out in perfect example, which is now recorded for us in the book that we read. And he left with us his helper, his spirit, so that we could actually live it out. Faith in Jesus as Lord is so much more than signing a doctrinal statement of faith. Faith is a full life allegiance to a radical king, belief, to his distinctly countercultural way of life, behavior, and to his radically countercultural community, belonging. And we need a balance of believing, behaving, and belonging as we live out on our lives under his kingdom. It's important to note here that Jesus' words in Mark 1 and Matthew 5 were not spoken to the heathen outsiders, repent and believe. Jesus spoke them to God's people. And Matthew wrote them intentionally being spoken to the church to find themselves again in who they were and what they were purposed for to fight against the cultural contamination that infiltrates their community. What happens when salt loses its salty flavor and its quality? What happens when the light is hidden under a basket? It's useless. Throw it out, trample it underfoot. When the quintessential character and essence of salt, light, Israel, church is lost, they cannot and they will not fulfill the purpose for which they are created. Nietzsche criticizes Christianity as a comfort religion, man-made to help us get through the pain of life that demands nothing of its followers. Nietzsche said, Christians would have to sing better songs for me to learn to have faith in their Redeemer. And his disciples would have to look more redeemed. Did he have a point? Perhaps the Christianity that he saw lived out a gospel which was purely, Jesus helps me with my hard thing and gives me hope for heaven. Last week, we talked about our call and our purpose to subdue the earth. If we don't do culture, culture does us. If we don't actively step out and make culture, culture makes us. Culture is making us and shaping us every day, even inside the church. Individualism, I define me. Consumerism, I choose what I want is for me. Materialism, stuff makes me happy. Tribalism, I just want to be with people like me. Secularism, I just keep my faith personal and private. Humanism, I am, I can, and I will, and we will succeed and progress. 
None of that exists in here, right? Or in here. For the purpose of the recording, I'm pointing to myself, like a pace interview. What are Donna's Caesars, still to be displaced, displaced and replaced by King Jesus? Plenty, let me tell you. What are our Caesars that need to be replaced by the strong conviction that is lived out in a life of faith that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? Brett McCracken wrote, the local church was never meant to be a cultural, comfortable, bourgeois social club that affirms people in their idolatry and helps them along a journey to their best life now. On the contrary, it was meant to be a counterculture, a set-apart community embodying a radically different vision for human flourishing. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gave a countercultural message on how to do the nitty-gritty of life. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you heard it said, culture, religious culture, but I say to you, counterculture. It goes back to the heart, belief, behaving, belonging. We, the church, by his spirit, are to model like a little town on a hill in BT9 to expose the darkness in this patch of the world, to preserve the patches of decay that we see and to add flavor to this corner of creation and to enable human flourishing here. And we cannot do it if we've lost and are losing our salty flavor or if we are staying inside and pulling down the blackout blinds. And so we take a countercultural stance on abortion, disability, internationals, refugees, asylum seekers, homelessness, gambling laws, gender, marriage, sex, money, quarrels and disputes, employment and work, giving to charity. And we take this stance and communicate our countercultural way of life in word, proclamation, and indeed embodiment. Can the church really say no to abortion if they don't follow it up by saying, we will help you raise your disabled child and be there from cradle to grave in all parts of their life. Disembodied words become moral slogans and do damage. How does this salt and light counterculture enable our purpose, the purpose for which we've been made? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is so radically, absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. First, firstly, living counterculturally as a holy nation is inherent in our identity. Peter, in his letters, tells the church that they are a holy nation, God's special possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And our identity as a holy nation is because of what a holy, other, distinctive, and beautiful God has done for us while we were powerless. And so we're told, be holy as I am holy. Be other, be distinctive as I am other and distinctive. What has been done to us and for us should I determine our activity as to what we do for others. 
And in the Old and the New Covenant, reference is made to God's people being countercultural, specifically to four groups of people under the justice umbrella. Orphans, widows, refugees and foreigners, dispossessed and the vulnerable. And these justice issues could serve as a measuring tool as to how we, as God's people, are living in this community because of who we are under God. And because who we are and how we act tells a bigger story that makes God known. If we worship a God who reconciles, we need to be engaging with the ministry of reconciliation, bringing the divisions and community together. We worship a God who is just and justified, we engage in justice issues. If we worship a God who redeems, renews, and restores, we, his church, engage in redeeming, renewing, restoring acts of creation out there. Once we were dispossessed and disowned, now we belong to a God with an inheritance. And so we go out, step out beyond ourselves to love and empower, to embrace those the world rejects. We've already been singing this morning about weak made strong. That's what we do. We make the weak strong. And we do all of this unashamedly as we go, proclaiming Jesus as our king. Living counterculturally exposes our sin idols deepens our kingdom living in here, and provides an encounter with the person of Jesus. Spending a morning in a food bank, not just bringing a, a bag of rice here, although that is great, but sitting and crying and praying with a mum who doesn't know how she's going to feed her kids that night, exposes the extent of my materialism. Spending a Friday night or providing overnight respite or going into a special needs school and massaging the feet of uh, severely autistic children challenges and points out our humanism and our criteria of what it means to have a successful life. Spending time in genuine friendship with a Chinese student exposes the tribalism within our Christian culture. One Presbyterian minister who had been on a real journey in his church uh, told me about their church's conviction that they idolized education, academic, and career success, so much so that it was creating boundaries between life within and life without. And so he led them on this journey where they were going to start giving their educational privilege away. So they started homework clubs and community centers. They did English language teaching in schools. They had a CAP job skills center, and they went and they taught interview skills to 16-year-olds who were going to be unemployed probably for the rest of their lives. And now they're, they're journeying into helping adults who have a learning disability find work placements in their local community. Unashamedly proclaiming and praying Jesus into everything that they do. And he says, we've seen growth in people's lives, community transformation, people and families submitting to Jesus, the better king, and a depth of faith formation within the church that was unexpected. People individually expressing that they have found meaning to their life because they're doing these things. But this requires presence. Living counterculturally 
as a holy nation brings glory to God and communicates the gospel. Newbigin asks, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power uh, which has the last word over human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? His answer, the believing community, usens. The only way the world will understand and believe the gospel, he says, is by the church. Local churches of men and women who believe it and who live by it. Verse 16 in Matthew 5 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. And the word for good deeds relates to justice, doing justice, and glorify your Father in heaven. First Peter 2.12 picks up on this. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In a world in which truth has lost its value and power, where established religion and authority are shunned, how do we communicate the gospel truth that Jesus is Lord and Savior? We preach Christ crucified. That is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks, and it's just weird and archaic to our Northern Irish friends. Barna research shows that individuals who are coming to faith within this culture don't start their journey towards Jesus by asking, is the Christian faith true? But rather asking, does it work? Is it good and is it beautiful? Show me. And activate. We experienced something that I wasn't prepared for. And as the, t the team, the volunteers and the fun days went back into their workplaces on Monday, and we're talking about what they had done in contrast to the rest of their friends in the staff room. I spent three hours with a severely autistic child and I've got the bruises to show it. Quite a few of you were given money by your work colleagues because they saw something more beautiful and better than the world offers these disabled kids and they wanted to be part of it. And it was such a great opportunity for me with individuals here with the team to write a letter to those people who donated 10, 50, 150 pounds, explaining that we do this because we serve a better king. We proclaimed and we embodied the gospel. This level of countercultural living is costly. Salt is only useful when it gives of itself. Light only functions when something burns. Because of this kind of cultural, countercultural community, the light on the hill for this community in our new building is going to be costly, not just to our pockets, but most adventure in following Jesus fully usually is because personal change is involved as we learn to live under our radical king. These verses in Matthew flow from Jesus cautioning his followers that they would be insulted, persecuted, and misunderstood. Why? Because we identify with Jesus, the king who ended up on a cross as he challenged the religious and cultural powers of the day. Secondly, if we're going to stand effectively as church at the interface of gospel and culture, community. That takes courageous, visionary leadership, 
a strong sense of unity. Biblical reflection, cultural understanding and analysis. Seeking the welfare of the city does not just happen. We would begin to be asking the questions, what does it mean for us to be fully holy, radical, different, other? And the answer may be not the way we've always done things in here. The spirit of Jesus has always led his church out and beyond themselves, globally, ethically, culturally, and structurally. And if we seek, really seek, to enter this BT9 community for the fullness of flourishing in this community, we're going to feel the cost. Rodney Stark talks about um, the rise of Christianity in um, the first century. And if we're thinking about the glory of God, us making the full weight of his glory known out there, I think what he says about that rise of Christianity has something that we can learn from. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of societal relationships, able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity and the church offer charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity and the church offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, the church provided a new and expanded sense of real family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, the church offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Human flourishing because of Jesus through his people. We, together, Windsor Church, in this new building, are called to be like a town on a hill, salt to this patch of the earth, light to this corner of the world. And so together, in the filling of his spirit, by repentance and belief, by behaving and belonging, for the sake of the human flourishing of BT9, and ultimately, for the glory of God, pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, here, now, just as it is in heaven. Amen.